So something for the kids to listen to and the adults as well as they would like. Just a couple of questions. Why shouldn't Christians be surprised by the day of the Lord? Why shouldn't we be surprised by the day of the Lord? And then secondly, what does it mean to edify someone? For those of you who are getting ready to write the answer down real quick, that last one doesn't come until the end of the sermon, so you have to wait and see what the answer is. So, Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night from a bad dream? Maybe you haven't been in school for a long time, but you still wake up and you think, I forgot to turn in that assignment, or I missed that class. You know the sinking feeling that you get when you're surprised by something like that. It's not a feeling that you really want to have. It's not a feeling that you want to repeat. The passage that we're looking at this morning says we should not have that surprised feeling, not have that sinking guilt or I failed to do something or something came up unexpectedly. We shouldn't have that sense when it comes to the subject of the future. Specifically, we should not be surprised by the day of the Lord. And so if you're not in 1 Thessalonians 5, turn there with me. It was our scripture reading a few moments ago. But the first three verses, I think we could basically say this. Don't be surprised by the day of the Lord. Why not? First of all, don't be surprised because you know what the day of the Lord is. Look at verse 1. It says, As to the times and epochs, you have no need of anything to be written to you, brethren. The first thing we see in connection with this is that the exact time of Christ's appearing is unknown to his people. We don't see that from this verse, but we see it from other passages. For example, in Acts 1.7, It is not for you to know times and epochs, but when the Holy Spirit appears, he will come upon you, and you will take the message throughout the known world. And so, it's not granted to us to know the day and the time when Jesus will come back. That being said, they had been taught about the day of the Lord. In connection with where it says, you have no need of anything to be written to you, uh, I think we could say that the teaching of the apostles revealed a proper response to future events. We saw this in chapter 4 and verse 9. He says, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Obviously, that verse, there's a sense in which our conscience gives us a sense that we have certain things that we ought to do, but there was also a very clear sense in which Paul taught them they needed to love each other. Jesus taught his followers they needed to love each other in the same way they didn't need anything to be written to them to inform them the first time. They just needed to be reminded of truth that they had already heard. What does the Bible say about the day of the Lord? Well, clearly they had some sense of what the Bible says, because back in chapter 1 and verse 10, it says that they turned to God to wait for His Son from heaven. So they were looking to the return of Christ. And it says here as well, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That idea of wrath is important, because in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was described as a time of judgment. Example would be Isaiah 13 and verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. We look at this and we say, that's not really the picture I had about Jesus coming back, is it? 
Because a lot of times we think Jesus is coming back and that's a positive thing and that's something to look forward to. And that is true in the sense in which we looked at it previously in chapter 4. When Jesus comes to gather his people, that is something that God's people are looking forward to. But part of the return of Christ to the earth is that he will come in judgment. The first time he came to bring salvation, the second time he comes to bring judgment. And so when we see this idea of the day of the Lord, we should, I think, at some level have mixed feelings about it. We should rejoice that we will not face it as God's people, but we should also recognize that it is a time of fear and destruction and not something that, that we should be uh, lighthearted about. It's a sobering thing to look at. We should not be surprised about the day of the Lord because we should know what it is, but we should not be surprised even though it comes suddenly. Look at verse 2. You know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Matthew 24, 43 uses this imagery in a different way. It says, if the, if the man had known his house was going to be broken into, he would have been waiting there and the thief wouldn't have gotten in and taken anything, right? And so that is the picture that we have here. The day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. What's the point of connection between a thief in the night and the day of the Lord? It comes unexpectedly, and I think we could also say it brings destruction. If you ever had your house broken into in some way or another, usually it's not just everything is left neat and tidy and everything in, in order. There's a sense of surprise in a, in a negative sort of way. There's a sense of something is lost or broken or missing in connection with the thief. And so the day of the Lord comes unexpectedly, and the day of the Lord comes in a, in a negative sense to bring judgment. We should not be surprised, furthermore, according to verse 3, like unbelievers who deceive themselves about the day. So we know what the day is. This passage tells us it comes unexpectedly like a thief in the night for those who don't know God, and we know that that's the case because verse 3 says, while they are saying... Not while we are saying, but while they are saying. Now, what are they saying? They're saying peace and safety. Now, uh, I haven't read as much on it lately, but for a while I was very interested in history. These words remind me of two separate historical events. One is a speech that Patrick Henry gave in connection with uh, the uh, American Revolution, all those sorts of things. And some people dispute whether he said these exact words, but the speech that we have recorded in at least some of the accounts, he says, men will cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. If he actually, if those were the words of his speech, I assume he's quoting from this, which is actually a quotation from the Old Testament, and he was warning, everybody is looking around and they're ignoring the signs of things that are going on and they're saying, everything's fine, and he says, no, we're being oppressed. There's all sorts of these problems going on. We need to do something about it. Or perhaps a more recent reference would be what Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England, said. He said, with regards to the agreement with Hitler that Great Britain and other countries made, he said, we have achieved peace for our time. Within a year, Hitler had spread out his grasp and seized more territory. Clearly, 
There are people who ignore obvious circumstances and say, everything's fine. Paul is saying here that people who do not know God will say, everything is fine in the face of God's judgment. What do they actually face? Not peace and safety. Look at the second phrase. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains upon a woman with child. Destruction will come suddenly. Again, they're surprised by it. It comes when they're not expecting it. It comes with destruction. It comes with terror. The point of connection with the second part of that phrase, like labor pains upon a woman with child, is how many of you were actually born on the due date that your, the doctor gave your mom? Most people aren't. Why? Because as much as there are people who are skilled in medicine, you can't know exactly when the baby's going to come. That's the point that Paul is making here. It's as though they're sitting at home just waiting for just going about their business and all of a sudden this thing comes upon them suddenly and they're like, it's here. I'm not ready for it. And those of you who are parents, I'm sure that's the sense you have a lot when your first child is born. Joyfully, but also some terror. But this, Paul is saying, is, is not just the, I'm uncertain because I'm a new parent. This is a a terror, a destruction has come upon me and I wasn't ready for it and I didn't know when it was coming and it's here. What does the last phrase say? And they will not escape. Not only are people apart from God blissfully unaware or willingly ignorant of the destruction that will come, they are also in an impossible situation. Now, for those of you who've ever read an adventure story or watched a disaster movie, what happens? The main character always makes it out. No, he's driving his Jeep down the road as the earthquake's breaking up the, the, uh, the road, or he's, he's going through, um, on, somebody's on a boat, and they're escaping this flood that's coming in. That's not the picture that we have here. There are no second chances. There is no escape. Destruction is coming, and they will not get away from it. So as I asked last week regarding our passage that talked about the dead in Christ and the living in Christ, I would ask you in connection with what these verses are talking about, are you in Christ today? Why is that important? Because if you are trusting in yourself to be right with God, you're foolish. You're like a person running toward a tornado, standing in the path of a tsunami, or waiting for the lava to reach your front door, sitting at home eating dinner, doing stuff on your computer, everything's fine, nothing's wrong, and destruction is right down the road from you, right around the corner, rushing towards you. Jonathan Edwards describes it this way, the person who doesn't know God is like a spider held over the fire, like a campfire. The only thing that's holding him is the thread. And those who don't know God are like that spider the only thing that is holding you up from the wrath of God is God's patience with you at this time. And Paul is saying there's a day coming when God's patience has reached its end, when God's wrath 
will be revealed and there will be no escape. So what does that mean? You and I need to be in a right relationship with God or we will face that wrath. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of those who experience God's wrath during a time of tribulation. And they are calling out and they are saying to the mountains, fall on us, let there be an avalanche so we don't have to face the wrath of God. Now think about that. If you are in such a, a terrible situation that you would rather be crushed in an avalanche than face something else, that something else is pretty bad, right? And so if you're not certain where you stand before God this morning, that is something that you need to deal with in your heart and mind because the alternative is you're standing here waiting for God's wrath to pour out. And Paul's prayer and his goal in writing to them is that you'll be standing here shielded from God's wrath because you are part of God's family. So looking back at chapter 5, we should not be surprised by the day of the Lord. So how are we supposed to respond to it? How do we live as we wait for the day like it says at the end of chapter 1? And the response is this, be alert and sober as you wait for the day of the Lord. Now, we're not going to get to that until a little bit later, in verse 6. But, why should we be alert and sober? First of all, because you are not in darkness. Look at verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of day. So, if you were in darkness, the day would overcome you. It would come like a thief. And there's, it's interesting how Paul uses this imagery here. It's like, if you are in the nighttime, the thief sneaks in. Why? Because you don't see him coming. It's dark. You don't, you're not aware of it. But he says, but that's not where you are. You're not in darkness. So where are you? He says, you're in the light. So if you're in the light and someone's sneaking up to your house, what's going to happen? You're going to see them. And so... If we're in the light, if we're of the light, then we don't face this day coming unexpectedly. He says further at the beginning of verse 5, you are sons of light and sons of day. So you're not in darkness, but you're sons of light and sons of day. And this imagery is used often in the New Testament. Uh, for example, Paul says we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of his dear son. It says, uh, Jesus said, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So all throughout the New Testament, we have this imagery. Following your own way, following Satan's example, living for yourself, that's darkness, that's evil, that's wrong. Following God is light and life and blessing. So what are we supposed to do? Since you are sons of light... And sons of day, or as it says at the end of verse 5, since we are not of night nor of darkness, what? So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So first of all, what are you not supposed to do? Don't sleep. Now, I understand if you work a different shift, you may sleep during the day. But for the vast majority of people, when you are, the time for sleeping is at night, and the time for being awake and doing work and all the things you need to do 
is during the day. And so Paul is saying, if you belong to the day, you need to work. You need to be ready. You need to be aware of what's going on. Because you're not of the darkness. It's not time for sleeping. It's time for working. And he also says, be alert and be sober. What does it mean to be alert? To be alert is not to be doing this. Which we all struggle with at different points. At church or in other things. Particularly when it gets warm. I've, I've done my share of it. I understand that. But what is Paul saying here? He's saying, since you belong to the day, be alert. You know what's going on. You see what's around you. He also says, be sober, be serious, be not under the control of something else. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So, what does he say? Be alert and sober. Why? Because you're not in darkness. You're sons of the light, sons of the day. So be awake, be alert, be sober. Secondly, he says you're a soldier. Look at verse 7. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. He's going to say in verse 8, but you're a soldier. But he says in verse 7, what's, the, what's his point here? I think his point is this. Soldiers aren't supposed to be asleep on the job or drunk on duty, right? What's his point? What's, why does he say this? He says those who sleep don't know what's happening. How many of you like to sleep? I like to sleep. At different points in life, we sleep a lot less than we would like to. When we're little kids, our parents say, it's time for a nap. We say, I don't want to take a nap. And then we get to be, you know, 30, 40, 60, and we're like, I wish I could take a nap. I wish my parents would be, you have to take a nap. But your boss usually doesn't want you to do that. So, uh, we like to sleep. And there's nothing wrong with sleep in its proper context. Sleep, it says in another passage, is a gift from God to his people. And so there's nothing wrong with sleep. But if you're a heavy sleeper, you miss a lot of things, right? Somebody might say, hey, did you hear that car horn going off all night? I was asleep. I didn't hear it. Hey, did you know there was an earthquake last night? Nope. You might miss a lot of things if you're asleep because you're not aware of what's going on. Obviously, there's the other extreme of sleeping too much, and sleep can become a problem. Uh, Proverbs talks a lot about this. If sleep becomes the pattern of our life and we're lazy, then that's a whole other set of problems. But the main point that Paul is making here is, if you're asleep, you don't know what's going on. I'm sure we probably all had that friend who fell asleep on a school trip or something like that, and somebody messed with his hair, drew something on his face, or whatever else. You have no idea what's going on because you're just out of it. In the same way, those who are drunk don't know what's happening. Proverbs 23 says this, Who has anguish, who has sorrow, who is always fighting, who is always complaining, who has unnecessary bruises, who has bloodshot eyes, it is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For the, in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations. You will say crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed at sea, clinging to a swaying mast. You will say, they hit me, but I didn't feel it. I didn't even know it when they beat me up. When will I wake up so I can look for another drink? Now, 
I have to be accurate with what the Bible says about these things. The Bible clearly says drunkenness is a sin. Is taking one drink automatically and always a sin? I don't think that we can support that from the scriptures. But, in light of the passage that we just looked at, that I just read for you, I think we ought to be very careful about something that could be connected with sin. But here's the point of connection. It can be connected with sin in the same way that eating food can be connected with gluttony, right? Here's a boundary, and God says, some things are meant to be enjoyed, and we say, you know what? I'm going to enjoy them in excess, and they're going to consume me, and they're going to rule over me. That's the problem with what's going on here. Someone who is drunk is overtaken, mastered by something, controlled by something in such a way that they have no concept of what's going on around them. To follow up on this, I would say being a drunk is a sin. It's not a disease. It's, there's no disease called alcoholism. It is a series of wrong choices, ignoring passages like Ephesians 5.18, where it says, Don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the complicating thing connected with this is this. If we practice a habit long enough, it seems like something that we can't ever change. And so if we get in the pattern of doing something that overtakes us and controls us, and we feel like I can't do anything different, the reason is because we've so ingrained that pattern in our lives that that's where we're stuck in. But it doesn't mean that it's some sort of medical condition. It means that we have to say, am I going to obey God or am I going to live for myself? We can't have two masters. We can be mastered by a bunch of different things, whether it be food. And that, that one's easy to harp on in our culture, but there are also people who are mastered by exercise. I've got to get in my workout today. If I don't get in my workout today, then I'm just, I'm just not a good person. And so there's, there's all kinds of extremes here. We could be mastered by watching TV. I'm going to binge watch TV, and I'm going to stay up all night. I'm going to miss work over it or, or whatever else. I could be mastered by the desire to get more money. I can be mastered by sleep or laziness or pretty much anything that becomes more important to me than following God. That's the extra sermon within the sermon. Getting back to the text, what's Paul's point? If you're asleep, you don't know what's happening. If you're drunk, you don't know what's happening. Verse 7. When is the appropriate time for people to do this in their culture and often in ours? At night. Are we of the night? No, we're of the day. So it's not time to be doing these things. It's time to be alert and sober. So we're not, as Christians, supposed to be wandering around senseless and unaware. Instead, soldiers are sober. Look at verse 8. Because we are of the day, let us be sober. They are alert. They are sober. Of the day. Soldiers of Christ are characterized in their person as being of the day, and what do of-the-day people do? They're awake. They're sober. They're serious. Why? Because they're in a spiritual battle. Look at the second half of verse 8. They're ready for this spiritual battle because it says, having put on... So we've, this is something that they've already done. They've put on what? They've put on armor. 
What things? The breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's interesting to look at this passage and compare and contrast it to Ephesians chapter 6. What are some of the things that we see looking at this passage and looking at Ephesians 6? First of all, Paul's list here is a lot shorter than the one in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is several more verses. This is only half a verse. But what's the point of both of the passages? God has provided in the Christian life things that function for us as armor, as protection. Now, to be clear, it's not physical armor, it's spiritual. A lot of you, if you grew up in church, maybe your kids had the little plastic armor set from the Christian bookstore with the shield and the helmet and the sword and, and all of those things. That's not what we're talking about. That may be a picture of what we're talking about, but what we're talking about is not something that you hold in your hands, that you carry around, that you put on in the morning when you put on your shirt and pants and belt and all that. It, this is a, a spiritual thing that we have. What things do we have? It says here, faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, the difference here from Ephesians 6 is that Paul says a breastplate of righteousness there and a breastplate of faith and love here. He says a helmet of salvation there versus hope of salvation here. I think the significance of it is this. Sometimes it would be easy for us to fixate on his description and make the image more important than the truth he's trying to communicate. In this sense, if I say that there's the breastplate of righteousness, then I say, well, that, that protects your chest area, and so that protects your heart, and so God wants me to guard my heart. And I think that's maybe going a little bit further afield than Paul's point is when it comes to what it says in Ephesians 6 or what it says here. He's saying, in the Christian life, these things are true collectively, and all of it together is the armor that God is using to protect us in this spiritual battle. So, for example, the shield of faith in Ephesians 6 or the breastplate of faith here, both would protect you from attack, right? So whether you say it's the, the thing you strap on to your midsection or whether you say it's the thing you hold on your arm, faith is protecting you in your spiritual battle against sin, against Satan, against the world in which we live. Same thing with the helmet. You can't have salvation disconnected from the hope that salvation brings. And so again, this is something that, that guards us and protects us. And so what's the point? Paul's point, I think, would be, do you see yourself in a spiritual battle? Are you prepared to fight? Again, it's like a, it's like a series of steps. It's not just, are you asleep and drunk on the job? It's not just, you're sitting there waiting for something to heaven, heaven happen. It's you're over here, you're ready for the battle, you're dressed and ready to go, you're involved in it right now. And so sometimes we say, well, I'm not over here, but I'm sitting right here, so that's fine. And Paul is saying, no, you need to be ready and you need to be active. So the question I would ask you connected with that is, are you involved in a spiritual battle? Because it's happening, whether you acknowledge it or not. Are you involved in it? Because it's easy for us to be sort of complacent and say, you know what, I'm just tired today. I don't feel like doing all the things connected with being a Christian. Now, if we're in a spiritual battle, if you're on the battlefield, the battle doesn't stop because you say, I'm having a bad day. 
right? If you're a soldier, you're out there and the battle is going on and you need to be involved in it. Because if you're not participating, what do we call that? If you don't participate and run away, you call it deserting. If you don't participate and you just sit there, you're not, you're not being a good soldier. So soldiers are sober. We also need to look to God's presence, not his wrath. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it says God has not destined us for wrath, God has a purpose for which he is saving his people and a goal toward which he is working to accomplish in and among them. So when it says, for example, in Ephesians 1, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and then it says in Ephesians 2 that we would walk in good works. And it says in John 6 that all of these that God is bringing to salvation, that he has given them to Christ and Christ will lose none of them and will raise them up at the last day. God is accomplishing something in the course of our salvation. And what is not part of that is us experiencing God's wrath. Why? Because to be under the wrath of God is because you are a sinner. What does it say in Romans 1? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so if we are under God's wrath, it is because we are sinners. We are in the darkness. We are unaware of what's going on. And so God has not intended his people for wrath. And I think that the fact that God does not intend his people for wrath, sometimes we look at that and we say, well, that means I'm not going to hell which is true, but I think that there are also events leading up to that final judgment that God is also going to deliver us from as well. We looked last week about the fact that Christ will return and gather his people to be with himself. And uh, when we see that, I think that we recognize that God is saving his people. Now, there's differences of opinion on this. Some people say, well, God will save his people from the coming wrath by ultimately delivering them through it in the same way that he delivers his people sometimes through trials instead of keeping them from trials. And I understand where they're coming from, but I don't think that we can say that we are going to go through the tribulation and all the judgments described in Revelation where God's wrath is poured out on sinners if we belong to Christ based on what it's saying here. They're going to be surprised by the day. It's going to come on them suddenly. They're not going to escape from it. You are not destined for wrath, brothers and sisters in Christ. Someone might ask the question, what about someone saved during the tribulation, the Jews and so, so forth who trust in Christ? My response to that would simply be that, first of all, they're not the audience that Paul is speaking to here, and second of all, that they would be an exception to this general principle that God's people are excluded from his wrath. Uh, I don't think that you have to make those two ideas fight against each other. I'm just saying, generally speaking, what he's pointing out here is those who are alive and who are trusting in Christ and are looking for his coming are not going to go through God's wrath in the tribulation or, or the second death that's described later in the book of Revelation. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 10. Through Christ, God's people will be with him, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
So how does the Bible describe our relationship to Christ if we belong to Christ? We are to be with Him. We are to be together with Him. Paul again uses this language of awake or asleep, but he's using it a little bit differently here. Paul, um, obviously he's an apostle, so we can't say anything bad about him, but he likes, to, he likes to jump from one idea to another, and so we want to make sure that we're not misunderstanding the picture that he's saying here. The connection with what he was saying earlier is the contrast between awake and asleep. The way he's using awake and asleep here is, are you alive or are you dead? Because if you're alive or if you're dead, for the Christian, there is no difference in the sense that you will be with Christ. We are connected with Christ here and now in this life. We will be connected with Christ as well in the life to come. And so, why did Jesus die? At least in part so that we would be reconciled to God and have a relationship with Him, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Jesus told this to His disciples. He says, I'm going, but if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to bring you to be there with me. Why? Because, again, as important and as wonderful as heaven is, and the new heaven and the new earth, The core of the hope and the joy that we have in salvation is that we have a relationship with God. Because heaven wouldn't be heaven if God wasn't there. And hell is hell because God has distanced himself from the people who are there. So the day of the Lord should not surprise God's people. Instead, we should be alert and sober as we wait for that day. We don't fear it's coming because we know that God will deliver us. Instead, we walk in the light. We're ready. We're in the spiritual battle as good soldiers who follow Christ. So be alert and be sober, but we didn't get to verse 11, did we? What does it say there? Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Now, when it says encourage... That's the same word we saw last week in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. So comfort, encourage, similar ideas, therefore comfort one another. Now, when it says that, last week was hopeful. Christ is coming back for his people. We're going to be with him. We're going to be reunited. We'll see those who have died in Christ. It will be something to look forward to. Why does he say comfort in connection with this? Because part of comforting is taking truth and reminding each other of it, right? And so we're taking these truths about the return of Christ and we're encouraging each other and we're saying, you are not to be surprised by the day of the Lord, by God's judgment. Instead, you are to be fighting as a soldier. You are to be ready. You are not facing God's wrath. So are you taking these truths and encouraging other Christians with them? Do you ever ask someone... Are you a good soldier for Christ this week? It seems odd to us, and maybe we wouldn't phrase it quite that way, but are you a good soldier of Christ? It's a question we should ask ourselves. I mean, one of the songs we sang said, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? It's a very thought-provoking line in that song because we sort of have that idea that if we follow God, everything will be easy and we're just sort of float up to the clouds and there will be no difficulty. But Jesus said, those who live godly will face persecution. There is opposition from the world. If they hated me, they will hate you for following me. And so we look at this and we say, it may not always be easy. So 
am I fighting the good fight of faith and am I talking with the people around me to encourage them to do the same thing? Or, when it says in the second part of the verse, build up one another, are we doing that? Building up one another, we'll look at more in the afternoon service from Ephesians 4, but I, you could define it this way. Doing things that promote maturity for that person and for the church. And part of that is taking these truths and reminding each other of them so that we grow in Christ, so that we're not complacent, so that we're shocked out of being awake and asleep because that's not how we're supposed to be. Instead, we're alert and we're sober and we're fighting the battle well. And I would be remiss in not saying this as well. Does this give us a sense of urgency for the person that you work with or a family member, or someone you run into at the grocery store, that if they don't know and understand this truth, they are under God's wrath now and will face it in times to come? That ought to arrest our attention. And I'll be honest, it does not seize my attention the way that it should sometimes. Or you look at your neighbors. And, you know, in the past... Um, there's been neighbors that I've had, and in, in my sinful heart I've said, I just want them to go away because they're making life difficult for me. They're having a fight in the middle of the night and screaming and throwing things and whatever when we lived in an apartment a while back. I just wish they would quit. I wish they would leave. But if I really understood and grappled with this passage, I should be saying to myself, do I really want them to face God's wrath just because they're inconveniencing me? We've got to examine our hearts about that. I need to grow in that. You need to grow in that. All of us need to grow in that. So, there's things that we should change about how we interact with each other. There's also things that we should change about how we talk to and interact with the people that we meet on a daily basis. Don't be surprised by the day. Be alert and sober as you fight the good fight of faith, looking for Christ to come back. And realize this is not something you're doing all by yourself. If you belong to Christ, if you're part of this church family, we are in this together, and we're supposed to be strengthening each other and encouraging one another and pointing each other toward following Christ better. Don't be surprised, but live alert and sober in light of the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these truths from your word, we recognize that it is a sobering thing to consider that you are a God who has wrath against sin. To realize that the only thing that spares us from that wrath is knowing Jesus. And not by knowing Jesus, not just coming to church, doing religious things, um, trying to be a nice person, but instead, actually and truly knowing and following Him. Lord, I pray that's where we would all be today. If anyone here is not, I pray that they would repent and turn from their sin and trust in You. I pray that we might be able to encourage them with Your truth. Lord, help us to have a burden for the people around us along these lines as well. Lord, help us to be alert and sober and to follow You well even this week, in Christ's name, amen.